Hello everyone, I'm Peter Lupson, author of the book Thank God for Football, about the church origins of 12 famous English football clubs who have played in the FA Premier League. The series is based on my book Thank God for Football, which is available from Amazon or directly from the publisher SPCK. Today's club is Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham Hotspur Football Club was born one August day in 1882 when a dozen boys in their early teens gathered under a lamppost in Tottenham, London and decided to form a football club. They called it Hotspur Football Club after a 14th century teenager nicknamed Harry Hotspur, renowned for his fearlessness in battle. Their early enthusiasm was soon put to the severest test. Before each home game, they took great care marking out their pitch on the Tottenham marshes, but when it was ready, older boys often pushed them aside and took over the pitch for themselves. They also frequently met verbal abuse from bullies who roamed the area on Saturday afternoons looking for trouble. Some of the players became so demoralised, they left the club. Most of the early players were members of a Bible class run at All Hallows Church, Tottenham, by John Ripshaw, a man who was like a father to them. In desperation, the lads turned to him in the summer of 1883 for help. He gave it willingly. He not only ensured they could play on their marked-out pitches, but also formed them into a proper club with a committee and regular fixtures. He was elected their president and treasurer. As a member of the council of the Tottenham branch of the YMCA, he also arranged for them to use the local YMCA building as their HQ. Here they held their committee meetings, changed on match days, and trained in the basement. It's no wonder, then, that many of the early players regarded Ripshire as, quote, the real father and founder of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. The first season under Ripshire's leadership, 1883-4, was a successful one. Of the 11 known matches played, 9 were won and only 2 lost. 32 goals were scored and only 2 conceded. It was during that season that the nickname Spurs appeared. The first match was at home against Brownlow Rovers and was a resounding 9-0 victory for Hotspur. In the return game, later in the season, play had to stop 10 minutes from time because the ball had burst. As this was the only ball owned by Rovers, the game couldn't go on. At that time, many clubs could only afford one ball, and it had to last the whole season. But if ever Hotspur FC found themselves on a Friday without a ball, Ripshaw would say to them, Well, never mind, lads, the Lord will provide. Sure enough, he would turn up on the Saturday with a ball, sometimes two under his arm, one for practice, one for the match. Although results the following season were creditable, it's remembered for reasons other than football. The first reason was a change of name. As there was another club in London, London Hotspur, also named after the fearless Harry Hotspur, the secretaries of the two clubs often received each other's mail. To avoid confusion, Ripshaw's club adopted the name Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. The second reason was a shameful one. Despite the good spirit created by Ripshaw at the club, the Hotspur lads were no angels. They often broke the YMCA rules by playing cards, which was forbidden, and by stealing berries from the mulberry bushes in the garden. Things came to a head one evening during a training session in the basement when their noise disturbed a meeting of the YMCA council on the floor above. One of the councillors left the meeting to investigate. 
but his timing couldn't have been worse. As he opened the door, he was hit full in the face by a fierce shot from one of the players. To make matters worse, the ball had been kicked into the fireplace only a few seconds earlier and was covered in soot. The councillor returned angry to the meeting and insisted that the boys had to go. They were duly expelled. But Ripshire, despite being let down and embarrassed by the boys, stuck with them. He approached the vicar, the Reverend Alexander Wilson, and asked if they could use the nearby premises of the Young Men's Church of England Society as their HQ. Wilson, who was fully aware of the boys' track record at the YMCA, agreed only on condition that they attended the Wednesday evening service at All Hallows Church as a sign of their good intent to behave. They accepted his terms, and the move went ahead. With new headquarters in place, everyone at the club could again concentrate on football. Results were encouraging in view of the strength of the opposition. A report in the Minutes book about an end-of-season function in 1885 gives some indication of the positive spirit at the club. A hearty vote of thanks was proposed to Mr Ripshire with great cheering for the kind way in which he'd helped the club financially and otherwise, and also for the tea he'd provided that evening. He said in reply that it was a great pleasure to have been able to help the club in any way, and he thought that it had had, on the whole, a very successful season. They had, it was true, suffered more defeats than last season, but that, he was sure, was owing to the strong clubs they'd played. In fact, they'd sometimes been looked upon with contempt by clubs who came down to play them, owing to their age. But he was glad to say that the Tottenham Hotspur generally managed to give a good account of themselves. Friendlies were the usual diet of Spurs matches, but in October 1885 they played in a cup competition for the first time. It was the first round of the London Association Cup. A crowd of 400 watched them achieve an impressive 5-2 victory over a London-based business house called St Albans. However, the next round brought no further joy as Spurs were crushed 8-0 by the mighty Casuals, a team made up of the cream of public school old boys and university players. Despite this disappointment, the club continued to enter cup competitions from that time on. For about two years, everything went smoothly, until early in the 1886-7 season. One Wednesday evening during a service, Reverend Wilson spotted a number of the boys playing cards in one of the pews, a clear breach of trust. They could expect no leniency. In the Victorian era, discipline was strict and adults meant what they said. Inevitably, they were expelled from their HQ. But once again, despite the embarrassment they'd caused him, Ripshire showed unconditional Christian love to those undeserving boys and did not abandon them. If he had done so, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club would not exist today. He immediately started the search for a new base, and before long found rooms for them at the Red House Coffee Palace in Tottenham High Road, a building close to Spurs' present White Hart Lane ground. The mix of friendlies and local cup competitions continued until 1892-3 when Spurs joined the newly formed Southern Alliance. By now, many of the faces from the early days had disappeared, but Ripshire was still in charge, ensuring that the spirit and character of the club had hardly changed. At the end of the 1893-4 season, after 11 years at the helm, 
Ripsha decided to step down as president. His resignation was accepted with great regret, but it was some consolation that at the start of the 1894-5 season he was appointed a patron and could therefore continue to watch the club's progress. And Spurs' progress was rapid. The club turned professional in 1895, became a limited company in 1898, moved to White Hart Lane in 1899, won the Championship of the Southern League in 1900 and won the FA Cup in 1901. Still the only club outside the Football League to have done so. All this happened within just 18 years of Ripshire coming to the help of a few despondent schoolboys in 1883. It shows the remarkable foundation he had laid. In fact, he'd created such a strong family spirit at the club that after he'd left, some of the boys who'd been with him from the beginning remained actively involved in the direction of its affairs. At the 1896-7 AGM, the first as a professional club, six of them were committee members, and when the club became a limited company in 1898, two of them were elected to the board of directors. In the famous football history, Association of Football and the Men Who Made It, which was published in 1906, the following is recorded. The Good Fellowship, which characterised the early stages of the club's history, still exists, despite change of circumstances and rise to fame. I have no hesitation in saying that there is no club in the country in which there is better feeling between the players and the directors than at Tottenham. But Ripshire created more than a spirit of good fellowship at the club. Under his leadership, Spurs also established a reputation for fair play and good sportsmanship that made them the most popular club in England. This reputation lasted well into the 20th century. In 1948, Fred Ward, author of A History of the Club, was asked by the editor of a northern sports newspaper... Why is it that when we up north speak of the Hotspur, we always use language that is respectful? Ward gave this answer. In the first place, most of the club's controllers in the past have played the game and consequently know that unfair tactics get a club nowhere that is creditable or advantageous. They do not wait for one of their players to be sent off the field by a referee. At Tottenham, they are their own disciplinarians. If one of their men goes beyond the pale of sportsmanship, or even shows a tendency to do so, he is called before the board at the first opportunity and told that there is no place for him in the team. Ward attributes the tradition of good sportsmanship at the club to John Ripshaw. Let us pause a while here and think of what that excellent Mr Ripshaw did. He started a tradition in the Hotspur Club, which has been maintained up to the present time. For in my opinion, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club have done much to perpetuate the best possible spirit in the playing of professional soccer. Ripshire had well and truly left his mark on the club. But what became of him? The last mention the club had of him was in a 1908 history of Tottenham Hotspur written by two of the boys who had played for him. It came as a great shock to us to learn that he is now living at Dover in humble circumstances and is totally blind. 
I decided to follow his trail and discovered that he'd left London to live with his sister and her family in Dover. They must have fallen on hard times because Ripshaw spent the last months of his life in very poor health in the Dover workhouse, an institution where medical care was provided for the poor and the destitute of the town. He died there on the 24th of September, aged 67, and was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. It is to Tottenham Hotspur's credit that when my book, Thank God for Football, brought Ripshaw's plight to light, the club commissioned a headstone for him. I was privileged to be one of the speakers at the dedication service of St Mary's Cemetery, Dover, on the 24th of September, 2007, the 100th anniversary of his death. Ripshaw's final resting place is now a fitting memorial to him and has drawn Spurs supporters to come and visit it to pay their respects. As you know, most clubs have a song or tune associated with that club and they love to sing the song in particular before, during and if they're successful in the match, after the game. I hope you enjoyed that story. It was the last in the series, and I hope that the series as a whole gave you a lot of pleasure. So it's goodbye from me, Peter Lupson, author of Thank God for Football.